In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, our concentration, that's where we're going to be today. Um, Eddie read this passage already, so we will reread it, but as we work our way through, we're not going to read the whole thing again all at once. I want to remind you of one of the most precious promises in all of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, this is what the Lord promised. He said, this is the one to whom I will look. Which, just that word alone, should make our heads lift and make us listen in close. Because isn't that what every single one of us wants? To be looked upon by the Lord with his smile upon us, with his favor. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. I think that we find in this particular scene in Luke 5, that promise of the Lord worked out in a very vivid and and personal way in the life of the man that we know as Simon Peter. This one morning on the lake of Gennesaret, Jesus speaks and Peter trembles. Jesus looks to him then and lays claim upon Peter's life. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, vast crowds were drawn to Christ. And at the same time in the beginning, Peter felt it only right, at least as far as what we see in Luke 5, Peter felt it only right to keep his distance. So the crowds drew near, and Peter put distance between himself and Jesus. Now we know that drawing near to Jesus is right, And distancing yourself from him is quite wrong. But in the end, Jesus would actually condemn the towns of Galilee, whose populace was drawing near and pressing in on Jesus on this particular day. He would end up condemning them for their unbelief. So in the beginning, they were drawing near, but for the wrong reasons. It was only because they saw all of these signs. Peter, in the beginning, on the other hand, kept his distance Because he saw through the sign to what the sign signified. He saw the glory of God in Christ and it made him tremble. He was like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah beheld that vision of the Lord and the angels around the throne of the Lord crying, Oh, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah felt like he was coming undone. He said, Woe is me. We see that kind of trembling and Because of that distancing from Jesus in Peter. But Peter did not stay distant, not for long. He heard this word from Jesus. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And that's how he would spend the rest of his life. Have you heard that call? Remember, something that we focused upon three weeks ago. We're not just talking here about what Jesus said. What he said is not just what he said. What he said is what he says. It's what he's speaking. So I'm not asking you, what do you think about what Jesus said? What I am pressing upon you is, how do you answer what he says? Have you heard this call upon your life? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
That is the commission for all of those who will follow Jesus Christ as their Lord. Everybody. We don't have the same form of ministry as the Apostle Peter. We're not going to fill his sandals, so to speak. We're not going to be apostles. But we all have the same function of ministry. To cast wide the net of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, with that call, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Father, as we come into your presence and open your word and consider what you say, I pray that you would speak loud and clear. And as much resistance as we have, I pray that you would break it down. If there is someone here who just has a thin wall, bring it down. But if there is someone here who has around their heart a very thick, hardened wall that they have been building up for a long time, I pray still, Father, that you would speak in the power of your Holy Spirit and bring that wall crumbling down. I pray, Father, that we would all do as Peter did, and we would be humble and contrite, and we would tremble before your word. And I pray, Father, that we would leave everything behind us and follow after Jesus for the rest of our lives. But only you can do this, Lord. This is your work. We leave it to you to accomplish, and we ask that you will. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Today, I want to urge you to do as Peter did. Tremble before the word of God. And take courage. Leave everything behind and follow after Christ. Live the rest of your life. Decide today that you are going to live faithfully the rest of your days, casting wide the net of the gospel. We have been concentrating on the authority of the word of Jesus. Jesus speaks And at his word, demons and fevers alike submit and flee. Now, naturally, the authority of that word is going to draw immense crowds, isn't it? Naturally speaking. Supernaturally, it's going to save some. Everyone whom God authoritatively calls to himself will be saved. So the crowd just presses in on Jesus. We see this in verse 1. Here this one morning by the lake of Gennesaret, which that's Luke's terminology. Matthew and Mark call it the Sea of Galilee. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. It went by all three names, but it was the most beautiful and plentiful body of water in the nation. So he's there and the crowds are pressing in and Jesus needs more breathing room. It's just the crush of the crowd. He needs some speaking room. So it says in verse 2 that he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. It was his floating pulpit. Simon Peter, by this time, is already pretty familiar with Jesus from the gospel according to John, we know that he actually met Jesus 
shortly after Jesus was baptized. His brother Andrew is the one that introduced them. And Peter has already traveled with Andrew, his brother, following Jesus into Galilee where he saw Jesus turn the water into wine. The book, the Gospel of John says that after that miracle, Jesus went down to Capernaum for a few days. And I just, I wonder if the events that we're reading now happen in what John very quickly summarized. I mean, he didn't give any details of what occurred in those few days. But maybe what we've seen in Luke 4 and what we're now seeing in Luke 5 is what transpired over those few days that Jesus was there. Of course, eventually we know he moved his, he made Capernaum his home base of ministry. So Simon Peter is already familiar with Jesus. We saw, in fact, in Luke 4 that Jesus had spent that Sabbath day in Capernaum teaching the people. He cast out a demon in the synagogue. In the afternoon, he had gone to Peter's house and he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. That was the fever that we talked about. And um, that, that night, in fact, once the sun had set, people from all over were bringing their sick. There were demon-possessed folk that were brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed them all. So Peter is definitely familiar with the ministry and the power of Christ. He's in, so to speak. He's already beginning to to follow, but in a way at a distance. He's in, but he's not all in. And what we're going to see is Jesus slowly but surely, maybe not so slowly, but definitely surely drawing Peter in, into the net of his grace. Hand over hand, word by word, he is drawing Peter in. So Peter submits to Jesus' request. And he gives Jesus a vantage from which his voice will just have a natural amplification. You've probably, those of you who have spent much time on the water, know how sound, when everything is still, just carries over the water in a remarkable way. So Jesus' voice now has a, a natural amplification to sweep over the waters onto the crowd that is pressing in on shore. It says in verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now on the surface, this request, it's not actually a request, it's a command, right? This command is odd, And it's rather off-putting. It's odd because it just seems so random. I mean, Peter is washing his nets. He's busy. He's ready to go home. And Jesus now gives him this order to go back out into into the lake. What? You mean now? And it's off-putting because this crew has just worked a disastrous 7P to 7A, swept the waters clean, they think, and ended up with nothing. They've caught absolutely nothing. So now they're just trying to finish their cleanup so that they can go home for a few hours and get a little bit of rest before the next shift begins. Commenting on this text, James Edwards writes, We need not ask, what goes through the mind of a professional fisherman in a foul mood? You know why he'd be in a foul mood. Come up with nothing after all night work. What goes through the mind of a professional fisherman in a foul mood when a non-fisherman orders him to do again in bad conditions what he already tried and failed to do in good conditions? And so Simon answers him at the beginning of verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now at the same time as he protests, 
it's pretty weak, isn't it? It's a weak protest, a really not so much weak as meek, because he calls Jesus Master. Master, we have toiled all night and taken nothing. That's why he says next, regarding him as Master, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Again, there is something about this word that is irresistible for the one who receives it. Now, according to the professional, there is nothing out there to catch. But Jesus is master. In other words, although Peter is the professional fisherman, and Jesus is the carpenter, and though this is the sea and not the shop, Jesus is boss. And what Jesus says goes. And so Peter will trust and obey his word. It says in verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, slight understatement, and their nets were breaking. Let's go on to verse 7. It says, uh, They, that is Peter and likely Andrew, his brother, signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now at this point, most commentators wonder aloud how Jesus accomplished this particular miracle. How did he do it? Was it by the all-knowing mind of Jesus that he accomplished this miracle? Or did he call the fish to a particular place by his all-powerful word? Was it his omnipotence or was it his omniscience? His all-knowing mind or his all-powerful word? I don't think that we really have to wonder. I don't think that there's really any reason to, to debate. Of course, Jesus by his all-knowing mind, knew where the fish were. And I also say, of course, by his all-powerful word, he commanded the fish to that particular place. Some of you heard in Sunday school this morning that we are not to isolate one scripture from another. So how can I say that we know it was by his all-knowing mind and his all-powerful word? Because Hebrews chapter 1 says that God's Son sustains the universe By what? By the word of his power. By the word of his power, he sustains all things. All of creation is at his beck and call. Everything. His word is beneath everything. So stars course and stars explode in the cosmos at his word. Storms form in the west and make their way east at his word. As it says in the Bible, that the wind comes out of his treasuries. Cicadas, even the periodic ones, every 13 years, rise up out of the ground and fall back down after four to six weeks at his word. Cells of all kinds live and die. At his word, the fish evade the nets and the fish are netted on the Washita. At his word, the Bible says in Colossians, he is before 
all things, and in him all things hold together. So, of course, by his all-powerful word, he called the fish to this place. It didn't, it wouldn't matter what waters you went to on the planet, the fish would be where they were at the word of Christ. Do you believe this? Not one molecule on this planet has ever gone rogue. Now, we might, someone might say, but isn't all of the human race in rebellion? And isn't the creation in bondage to corruption? That's Romans 8. And, and those things are true. But we must make a very careful distinction in the will of God. That there is a will of decree and a will of command. There is his sovereign will, and then there is God's moral will. So, one example of this, I mean, this does, this seems like, as one person has put it, that seems like divine schizophrenia. How can, how can God decree one thing and command another, and that command not be fulfilled, but the decree be fulfilled? How, how does that work? The clearest example of this is the example of the death of Jesus Christ, the most scandalous sin in the history of the human race. What did Peter, the apostle, say in the book of Acts about the death of Jesus? In Acts 2, he said, You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him and killed him by lawless hands. And that, But he also says in that same text, Him whom God delivered up by his definite plan and foreknowledge. The one God delivered up by his definite plan and foreknowledge, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And there is God's will of decree and his will of command. His sovereign will being fulfilled and his moral will being so very clearly violated. And that's why I say not a single molecule on this planet has ever gone rogue to God's will of decree. There was a, um, a Dutch prime minister. Well, I mean, what wouldn't you give to have a prime minister like this? His name was Abraham Kuyper. And he made this famous statement. He said that there, I, I may be paraphrasing, there is not a single square inch of this planet over which Jesus as Lord does not say, mine. That's our Christ. That's the Lord. Yeah, who does this? Someone who is more than master. He is Lord. You you have to wonder when the next good fishing would have been on these waters. Because it seems like Jesus has called every single fish in the vicinity. Their nets are breaking. Their boats are barely above the waterline. And if you have in your mind some kind of rowboat or canoe or, you know, incapable boat of any kind, I mean, uh, back in 1986, in Magdala, which was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's where Mary Magdalene was from, there was... Um, a boat discovered a first century fishing vessel and the thing was 27 feet long. So we're not talking about just a little boat. These boats were significant. They were very capable. And these two boats are just above the waterline. They are so cram packed. 
with fish. You can just imagine the crew laughing as they begin to bring in this haul, hand over hand, grasping, pulling, straining. And then when the catch is in, and they're barely above the waterline, Peter, who has been caught up in the moment, looks back to Jesus. And he responds to Jesus in a way that we haven't seen anybody respond yet. And really in a way that we rarely do see people respond in the Bible storyline. Because what is, what is the response to Jesus? Typically, everybody's pressing in. Everybody is clamoring for Jesus. They're demanding that he stay. Back in Luke 4, why did the Capernaum crowd want Jesus to stay with them? Because on this one night, Jesus had healed everybody who was sick. And after that, they are the healthiest little town, healthiest town period in the whole country. They've never felt better. If Jesus will live with them, they'll live forever. So let's get Jesus to stay, right? But Peter, he wants Jesus to leave. Because he sees through the sign to what it signified. He sees the glory of God in Christ, and this man cannot stand it. It's not as though he just, as you know, a veteran fisherman on the sea, you know, uses salty language or whatever. You know, he has a reputation for being a bad boy or something like that. He just knows he's a man. He knows he's a sinner, and he knows that he is standing in the presence of the pure and the holy one, the Lord. How can this be? How can the pure and holy abide the presence of the profane? How? Something has to give. Somebody has to die, right? That's the law. That's the law of the holy God. He cannot abide the sinner. But what if the pure and the holy will take on all the profanity of the profane and die in the place of the profane? Nobody would think that's the way it's going to be. But that is the plan of God from eternity past. Simon Peter says in verse 8, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. He wants Christ to leave. He is like the tax collector. In Jesus' parable that Jesus told in Luke 18, when he contrasted the Pharisee, who is all self-righteous, he draws near with all kinds of assumption, I am better than other people. He's looking, he says even, I thank you God that I am not like this tax collector, but I do this and I do that. And the tax collector, he doesn't draw near. The tax collector in Jesus' story, he distances himself and he can't bear to even lift his eyes. He just beats on his chest and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's Peter, the humble and contrite one who trembles at Christ's word. But Jesus will die for this man. The pure will die in the place of the profane. And so Jesus says, do not be afraid. Remember what Jesus said 
is not just what he said. It's what he says. Have you heard this word from Christ? Do not be afraid. Come. Have you heard this word? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for your peace and your salvation? Have you found your rest and have you found your refuge in the words of Jesus' mercy? One morning after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you remember Peter went back to fishing for a brief moment? It was back again on the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's offshore about a hundred yards, the Bible says. And, and once again, he is standing in a boat that is filled with fish. And once again, it's at the directive of Jesus. But that time, Jesus wasn't in the boat with those several disciples. He called out to them from the shore. And John said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter recognized, he rec- listen, he recognizes again that it's the Lord, just as in this, this instance. He recognizes it's the Lord, but on this occasion, he doesn't distance himself from Christ. He dives in. And what's, what's strange about this, what is wonderful about the mercy of God, is on that occasion, Peter knows his sin and his guilt better than ever before. Because he has just been guilty of denying Christ three times at Jesus' trial. He said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I swear upon the Bible I do not know him. May heaven bring down all of its curses if I know that man. That's what he meant, what it means when he swore an oath that he did not know Jesus. So Peter knows he is more guilty than ever before. But no distance. He can't tolerate distance between him and Jesus. And he knows the mercy of Christ. So he dives into the water. He swims ahead of the boat to the shore just so he can be close to Christ. Jesus' word came down on Peter's soul. Do not be afraid with divine blunt force. And again, Peter saw through the sign to the signified, Jesus is Lord. To Peter, Jesus was irresistible. Have you tried your hand at resisting Christ and found him irresistible? I spent years resisting. But Christ's word prevailed over me. His word drew me in. Are you in? Are you all in? Not just part, not just like halfway trying to to straddle, you know, Jesus and the world. But are you all in? As one person said, here was the Lord of fish and fishermen. I want to say it again. Here was the Lord of fish and fishermen, the Lord of nature, the Lord of men and their daily work. And as the Lord of men and their daily work, he has the power to change the man and he has the prerogative to change his daily work. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He's not asking. 
It's not a polite request. It's not an invitation. He's not just trying to, to gauge whether Peter is interested and available. And actually, technically, it's not even a command. It's a promise here at the end of verse 10. From now on, you will be catching men. It's a promise with the force of a command. What was the point of this miracle, again, which seemed at the beginning so random? Put out your boat into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. It seemed so random at first, right? And the point is, the glory of God in Christ. That's what the sign signifies. The glory of God is in Him. And it proves the authority of His Word. The authority of God's anointed King. But if, if that's all that the miracle was for, why would Jesus not just, you know, whistle and have the fish leap out of the water and into the boat? You know, and why go to all that work? Because all along the way, step by step, Jesus is drawing Peter in. He's testing him. He's seeing if he will obey. And he is drawing him into the net of his grace, hand over hand, word by word, until Peter is convinced, until Peter is certain of the worth of following Jesus. So by the time that Jesus gets to this third command, he's already told him, give me your boat and put it out a little bit. Peter obeyed. Then he said, launch into the deep and put down your nets. Peter obeyed. And now for this third direction, Peter is in the position where he will, certain of the worth of Jesus, he will trust and he will obey him. Jesus has put him in that position. What does Jesus mean that Peter is going to catch men? Well, by doing this particular miracle, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Jesus has set this one up really nicely, so there's not a whole lot of questioning. Although, maybe a little bit of uh, caution is in order, because if, we, if you want to say, okay, fishing for fish and fishing for men, A equals B and C equals D, if we do that, you know, fish get caught, and then fish get sold, and fish get eaten. So if you want to make everything equal, if you want to wring every drop of water out of this metaphor, you might have fishing for men being pretty nasty and potentially cannibalistic, right? So we know, though, we're not dumb. We know what Jesus means by from now on, you will catch men. The fish are brought in and sold to be eaten, and the men are brought in for salvation. To live. Peter is called here to cast wide the net of the gospel and draw people into the saving grace of God. It says in verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. We know that includes Peter and Andrew, the two brothers, and James and John, the other two brothers, sons of Zebedee. So I guess Zebedee and what servants were left you know, dealt with the fish, and we're thinking, jackpot. But the men who really had won were those who are following Christ with their lives. Now, when it says that they left everything and followed after Jesus, that doesn't mean that Peter then sold his home and divorced his wife. But it does mean that he reordered his life. 
And he reordered all of his loves. And that was not a bad thing for Peter's family. The best thing that you can ever do for your family is stop loving them in first place. The best thing you can do for them is love them in second place under the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you love Jesus first and family second, your love for them actually does not diminish. Your love for them actually grows. And you do them more good than you could ever do if you loved them first. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and love them instead of God, I shall actually be moving toward the state in which I shall not love them at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. In other words, when you reorder your first love to Jesus, it is not at your family's expense. It is to their gain. Now, do you think that Jesus calls you to anything less than what he called Peter and these others to? Do you think he calls you to anything less? Do you think that Jesus would ever settle for being your second love? If he did settle, he is not who he claimed to be. But he is. Peter acknowledged it. He is Lord. And he must have first place in your love. And when you love him first and your family second, in fact, when the love gap between the two is so great that Jesus would actually call the one love and the other like hatred, you are actually loving them more. You are loving them more. Why should Peter, or why should you, trust Jesus and take him at his word? How does Peter know that he is not? I mean, because if you think about it, if Jesus would stay with Peter and just say, call for the fish once a week, Peter would head up the most thriving fishing industry on the nation's most plentiful lake. He'd be top dog, wouldn't he? If Jesus would just stay and call fish for Peter. So how does Peter know that he is not leaving a lucrative business for something that's going to fail in the end. He knows because he trembles at the word of Christ. Jesus spoke and the nets were breaking and the boats were sinking. And so Peter can leave the nets and he can leave the boats behind to follow Jesus and cast wide the net of the gospel In Jesus' name, at Jesus' word. And just as before, Jesus will fill the nets. Right? Jesus will fill the nets. Whatever Jesus said, to whomever he said it, or to whatever he said it, like a fever. Jesus' word possessed authority. He commanded and unseen demons fled. He has authority over the world of spirits. 
He commanded and unseen sicknesses fled. He has authority over the world of sickness and disease. He commanded and unseen fish came. He has authority over the world of nature. Will the world of souls, the world of unseen hearts be any different? Does Jesus have any less authority over that realm than he does any other? What is outside the authority of Christ? So it is no wonder that seeing this clearly, Peter calls Jesus Lord, leaves everything behind, and follows him to spend the rest of his life casting the net of the gospel. Would any other response from Peter even make sense? Okay, so you know these things, right? You've heard these things, and you know these things. You believe these things. Jesus has authority over the spirit realm. He just speaks, and what he says does. His word does the work. What he says does. He speaks demons flee, fevers flee, fish come. Authority over the spirit realm. Authority over the microbiological realm. Authority over all the realm of nature. You know these things. So if Peter had said, thanks but no thanks, you would say, Peter, you are insane. Does any other response make sense? You and I are called to live our lives, to use Jesus' words, from now on. Catching men. Will you leave everything behind? Will you reorder all of your priorities and loves to follow Jesus and cast out the net of the gospel of God to draw people in to his grace? What other response makes sense? Some of you rarely rarely call another soul to turn from sin and self and put faith in Jesus. But don't you realize that all whom God calls will come? All whom he effectually calls, there is the invitation, the gospel call that goes out to every man, woman, and child on the planet. And then there is that summons that no heart can resist. All his fish will come. He didn't say it exactly like that, but it's in the same territory, same ballpark, when he said, my sheep hear my voice. Right? And I know them, and they follow me. So tell them, tell them to turn from sin and self and put faith in Jesus. Tell them of the free grace of God. Tell them the price that they will pay following him. Tell them that Jesus alone can save. Tell them that Jesus only can satisfy. Tell them the glories of God in Christ. Tell them. Cast out the gospel net. What are your plans for this week? Wouldn't it be, shouldn't it be odd if we would just file through our schedule for this upcoming week and think, okay, I got to do that Monday, got this coming up on Wednesday, 
got to be here for this appointment. Got to talk to that person. Got this job. Yeah, that's, that's my week. Where are our plans for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear his call come? Before he tells you to fish for men, he says to you, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. So tremble at his word, like Peter. And trust his word and take courage. Take courage to leave everything behind and follow Christ casting the gospel net. He calls you and I now that he has gone back into glory. He calls you and I to speak on his behalf. We speak the words of Jesus and Jesus speaks through us. We are his ambassadors. And through his word, he will catch fish and he will gather the sheep. He will save the sinners. He will multiply the disciples and he will build up his church. Tremble at his word, but do not be afraid. Leave everything behind. Let's follow Christ and let's speak the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we first heard of you, there was fear. Because we knew already and we heard that we were sinners. And we heard and we knew that you were holy. And we were afraid. But you told us, through your son Jesus, whom you sent to die our death, we heard, do not be afraid. Come. Those who come, I will never send away. And so we came. And you saved us. You made us your own. And Father, if there is someone here who is not yet all in, who is not putting all of their faith in Jesus and is not surrendering to him as Lord, I pray that you would speak, break the wall of their resistance. And I pray that irresistibly they would be drawn. And now you send us out and you tell us again, do not be afraid, but speak the good news of Jesus in Jesus' name. Be my messengers. And through you, through us, Father, we know you will save. You will make disciples. You will turn this world upside down. Souls will be saved. The church will be built. The gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. So, Father, I pray that we would take courage, reorder our lives and our loves to have Jesus first of all, Jesus Lord of all. And I pray that we would leave everything behind and share the good news of Jesus with all.
In Christ's name I pray. For his sake, Father. Amen.